Well, we've been considering Paul's letter to Titus. And if you haven't turned there already, I invite you to do so now. It can be found on page 998 in a a pew Bible. The text we'll be looking at this morning is also printed on page 8 in your bulletin. And so this is a letter that was written to Titus. Paul wrote it to Titus uh, with instructions for his ministry there to the church in Crete. And we've seen already in our study of this letter, even though it's a a relatively short letter, he's told Titus to establish elders who can lead the churches there, elders whose character is above reproach and whose doctrine is sound. And then we saw last week that he's to deal with the problems that are taking place there. And those problems are described primarily in terms of false teaching. False teaching that needs to be silenced. And those who are doing it, uh, Paul says, they need to be rebuked. And we saw that the rebuke was in hope of change, that they would change from this doctrine that they were teaching. And one of the things that's really important to keep in mind is that this false teaching is really hurting the church. Uh, Paul says that whole families are being upset by what's going on there. And that's not upset like, "Mm, I don't like what's happening at church today. Uh, It's upset in terms of ruining and destroying. Real families are being very messed up and harmed by the distorted teaching that's happening from these teachers within the church. And so in response to this situation, in response to this problem, Paul tells Titus, and we we see this in the beginning of our passage, he says, but you teach what accords with sound doctrine. And we've broken this section up into two sermons, and it can be easy with our Bible headings to kind of lose track of this. But if you you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it's saying, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And that goes all the way through the end of chapter 2 to verse 15, which says, these things are what you are to be teaching. Now, I'm not sure what you hear when you hear the phrase sound doctrine. What immediately comes to my mind is some sort of a systematic theology class. And I've been a part of many of those, and I really enjoy those. But what's interesting is as we see how Paul actually thinks of sound doctrine or healthy doctrine is another way that could be uh, treated, it's much more than that. He says, teach these things in accord with sound doctrine. And then in our section today, all he talks about is the people's conduct, their way of life. And then in, as he sandwiches it there in verse 15 with, with news of the gospel message. So for Paul, healthy doctrine, understanding God's word well, it brings a way of life, a way of conduct, a godly way of living. And as we heard in our scripture reading, this is what the gospel does. And I love how Paul mentions it in the section that we'll look at next week. But he says that God's grace, it comes to us and it saves us. But God's grace also continues to train us. It continues to train us to people who, having been purified from evil, are also zealous for good works in our daily lives. And so in our passage this morning, what we're going to see is just this snapshot that Paul gives to Titus so that Titus would be teaching these things um, in the church there at Crete. And it's a snapshot of what it looks like for lives to be trained by grace. 
And so we'll, we'll hear that as we look at our section this morning. So let me read our passage. It's Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. This is God's word. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are able to teach, or they are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So far the reading of God's word, and let's pray and ask his help as we consider this text this morning. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word and that you have not only revealed yourself, but the work that you are seeking to do in us by your spirit. We pray that he would help us today, that he would be powerfully at work as we hear and consider your word as it is preached to us. We pray that you would teach us healthy doctrine today and that by your spirit you would train us in grace. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we'll, we'll look at this passage under three headings, three points. The first is grace's comprehensive call. Secondly, grace's common command. And then finally, grace's common motivation. And so I'll remind you of those as we go, if that's helpful uh, to you. But, but first of all, we'll notice grace's comprehensive call. Uh, as Paul gives Titus this snapshot, really, of what lives trained by grace look like, one of the things that we see is how comprehensive it is. Grace is there to train all of us. And really, there are kind of two things we can notice about this. The first is grace trains us in every stage in life. Grace trains us in every stage of life. Unlike some forms of religion, Christianity isn't just a guy thing where the men are taught biblical truths, the women hopefully just pick up the scraps, it's kind of trickle-down religion or something like that. Or it's also not just a thing for women because men are just idiots or something. We see that doctrine, that a godly life, that the Christian life and being trained by grace is for both men and women. And Paul calls Titus to be speaking these things to both men and women. It's not just the men who are important in the church. And then notice in this picture too, mature men and women are to be involved in exampling and mentoring the younger. It's men and women together in the whole body of Christ. And throughout this, we also hear how he mentions the older and the younger in the church. Now, it is important to understand their cultural context, that the um, average lifespan was far shorter than ours. 
But when we hear the term younger, it pretty much means from puberty until you're about 30 or 40. Uh, and so once you get above 40, you become old, like me and like Ryan, right? So we are older men up here with gray in our beards. So whatever the actual range is of how we think about that, I think it's really important, though, to see this younger, which is starting, you know, 12, 13, 10, 12, 13, something like that, all the way into maybe your 30s and then and older as well. It's this inclusion that's there in the church. It's not this, if you're older, you have no role. You've done your part, now please step aside. It's also not the retirement mindset that is so often held out there that says, you've already done your work, now it's just time to sit back and relax and have fun. No, in the church, there's continued growth and maturity and modeling and teaching and training to be done by the older among us, even though that can come through diminished capacities and availabilities for different reasons. There's a place for the older, a vital place for the older in the church. And notice also that it's not just Christianity's just an adult thing or Christianity's just an old person thing. We know from elsewhere in Scripture, children are to be trained up in the ways of the Lord as an organic part of the body of Christ gathering together. And here, you notice the younger women and the younger men, and again, think 12 and beyond, are looking to the example of mature believers. And they're to be cared for and invested in as they seek to grow and mature in the ways of the Lord. And so I find this to be such an amazing corrective to how we often think about things. We live in a world where certain age groups are often sidelined and not seen as important or where we're all split out into our demographics and just try to stay together that way. But Paul holds forth this vibrant community, right, of everyone having a place, of men and women, old and young, all being trained by the grace of God and needed in each other's lives. And so we see in this comprehensive call, grace is at work training us in every stage of life. But secondly, we see in this comprehensive call that grace trains us in every vocation. Grace is there training us also in every vocation. This is what we would consider a a topical letter. Paul is giving Titus examples of what to teach. And he's wisely highlighting a few situations that affect a lot of the church there. He's not comprehensively speaking about everything in the Christian life, but he's speaking about um, some things that affect many of the people. And we notice in particular, he addresses women who were wives and mothers, and he also addresses people who were bondservants or slaves. And so it's important to bear in mind that he's not addressing Every situation, he's giving a snapshot of grace. And he says, married women with children, here's what shows the beauty of God's gospel word to you in that situation. Those who are bondservants, here's how you, even in that difficult calling in life, can adorn the gospel each day. That's what he's setting out to do. And so I want us to look at those two situations and and just to spend a little bit of time there thinking about them as we think about this calling of grace. First, he says, there's grace for women at home. Now, as soon as we talk about women in the home, I understand as soon as I say that, 
we're all hearing that in different ways, right? I saw some heads just go like this when I did it, and others just take a deep breath. And, and for some of you thought, great, this, this should be wonderful. And I get to try and address all of that in a few sentences. But when in doubt, resort to Taylor Swift. So if you were here in um, Sunday school this morning, my daughter outed me that I listened to Taylor Swift and have been a fan of her music for a long time. She has an album that just came out. And um, in one of her latest songs, Lavender Haze, she's, she's expressing this angst that she feels about the pressure to marry her longtime boyfriend. And she says, all they keep asking me is if I'm going to be your bride. The only kind of girl they see is a one night or a wife. And then as the rest of the song goes on, what's clear is that part of the angst and pressure that she feels is she feels what's being held out to her in wifehood is really just a snapshot from the 1950s. And Taylor Swift, like many other women, see that snapshot and my heart goes out to them because they're saying, that's not who... That's not what I am. Uh, That's not what wifehood would look like for me. And while I know that a biblical view of being a woman and a wife is countercultural in many ways, it's also not that small. It's also not just a snapshot from the 1950s. And we have a tendency inside the church sometimes to take passages like this that highlight a way of being that women are to have in the home as he's addressing that, but we can turn it into a list of do's and don'ts. And when we turn it into a list of do's and don'ts, you know what ends up happening? It becomes a picture of someone's life that you're then seeking to superimpose over another image bearer. And it doesn't line up exactly. It shrinks the beauty of the biblical understanding of what wifehood is meant to be as designed by God. And so as we come to this passage, I think we have to be careful about a few things. One is that we have to make sure that we keep what we say about women in the home, that we keep it to what the Bible actually says. It's not actually a list of do's and don'ts. What Paul is holding forth is a type of person to become. Someone who's loving and kind. Someone who cares in this particular context. And when we go beyond the Bible and add these lists to it, we actually end up doing harm. And um, we could talk much more about that. So we have to keep it to what the Bible says. But then there's a second thing we have to do, and that's we have to make sure that we keep the rest of the Bible in mind as we hear these instructions. This isn't the only thing that Paul says about Christian women. Not all women are to be wives. We saw a few weeks ago, Paul passionately uh, passionately upholds the, the value, the desirability of singleness as a calling for both men and women in the church. Not all women who are wives will have children, and that can be for all kinds of reasons. These are not instructions here about what all women everywhere in the church need to be doing. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, for those who are married and have children, grace finds you right there. There is good for you to do in that situation and in that calling. And if you notice the instruction that he actually gives, it's, it's really interesting. He says, essentially, live oriented toward love of neighbor, 
which is something that the whole Bible is really about for all of us as believers, right? But for women who are wives and mothers, it's live oriented toward love of your closest neighbor, your husband and your children. It says there, love your husband. I love that it says that. Because that's a, well, not just because I'm a husband. I, yeah, I heard the laugh and I'm like, why is that? Fun? Okay, I see, I see. I love that it says that in part for the benefits that brings me, yes. Um, but I also love it in part because of, of how robust that actually is. The whole Bible is about what it means to love other people and the wisdom that that requires. And if we boil it down to something so simple and so trite, it, it loses the wonder of what it's actually seeking to say. Saying, wives, it's, it's not just appeasing your husband, but it's learning to consider what's truly good for him in his soul. And particularly if he's a believer, then yes, it's, it's caring and it's serving, but it's also bringing truth and correcting as, as a sister in the Lord. It's the robustness of love of the closest neighbor in your life. Um, and yes, this happens, you'll notice, within a context of submission, it says. Now that can be a loaded word too. I think it's really important to understand that submission is not a synonym for subjugation. It doesn't imply inferiority of any kind for women to men but it's a voluntarily coming alongside her husband as his helper, like God helps us, in a way that in this context of mutual love and respect and unity, it shows the beauty of how Christ stooped to love and to serve us. When this is rightly applied, it's a beautiful display of God's gospel love and grace. But when it's misused, it does satanic destruction and harm because it distorts truths about who God is and how we're called to relate to him. You know, far more uh, can be said about this. The elders have taken time to write about that in a booklet we have called When Head and Helper Are Hurting. And if as you're hearing this, you have questions about that or you find yourself in a difficult situation, we would love to talk through those things with you. And we have other godly women in the church who would be happy to process some of this because I know these things have been so misused at times. But the point that we need to see in this is what, what he's saying here is for women who are married, grace is there to help you love your husband. And for those women who have children, they're to learn to love them. It's not worshiping them in indulgence, right? And it's also not just keeping them in line, you know, making sure they're checking all the boxes as children. But, but it's the robustness, again, of loving them as image bearers who have been entrusted to them for a time to steward, to care for, and to nurture. And all of this for these women, is shaped by being self-controlled and pure and kind, which are qualities that all of us are to be pursuing, that, that grace is forming in all of us. Now, this phrase, working at home, I think deserves some special attention. Remember that Paul and his hearers, they live in a pre-industrial world, don't they? There wasn't as clear of a line between this is the home and this is the office or factory where work is done. <laughs> there was much more overflow and interplay between those things. 
And the point that Paul is making here is that she is to be productive. The opposite of this working in the home is actually being lazy, or as Paul describes in 1 Timothy 5, being idle and going from house to house as a gossip or as a busybody. And again, the, the rest of Scripture helps us kind of fill this out where we can focus on the home and, okay, what's inside the home and what's outside the home and what can the proportions be and all these do's and don'ts. Instead, the rest of Scripture helps us see that the four walls of a home is not the only place where a woman can work and be productive in the world. In Proverbs 31, a wife, the excellent wife of all things, is industrious in many ways. She's out buying fields and she's blessing her maidens and she's helping the poor. She's all over the place doing good as this wife. The New Testament also shows us Lydia, this successful businesswoman who played such a key role in the early church. And so we see that this working in the home and and being a wife and a mother, it's not the only calling for Christian women. But many find themselves in that situation and, and have chosen that path. And Paul wants them to know that good, healthy doctrine says grace meets you right there to train you to see the the good that the Spirit is empowering you to do in that particular context. And so there's grace for women in the home. And then he also says there's grace for bondservants. There's grace for bondservants. This is really interesting, isn't it? If you think of Paul writing to a church, the fact that he would pause and address this, I just love how radically countercultural it is for Paul. Because what his attention to their situation shows is that their role, even as those who viewed as the lowest and with the fewest rights in society, have rights and responsibilities and privileges and a a weighty calling within the church, within the body of Christ. And so this instruction that he gives to bond servants, it shows them that even in their situation, where their rights are far more limited than almost anyone else in the church, there were still ways each and every day that their actions could adorn and highlight the beauty of the gospel. They can show an attitude of submission in, in all areas, in everything. So it's, it's showing this um, embracing of this attitude in their work for their master, but still always having to consider what it means to honor God rather than men. He's not commanding them to do things that go against their conscience. They're not to be argumentative, not talking back disrespectfully to their masters. They're not to steal. Think how easy that would be, right? You're giving your whole life to this person. Your entire livelihood is bound up with them. And it'd be so easy to just take, ah, they won't notice this little bit here, this little bit there. I mean, I'll, I'll certainly make up for it, right? And Paul's saying, no, there's a way you can live not pilfering, not stealing, and not justifying those things in your mind. Instead, they're to show all good faith, which means they're to be trustworthy workers for their masters. Our present work situations are definitely not a one-to-one to the bondservant relationship. But I think it really helps us get a vision for what Christian living in the workplace can look like, doesn't it? If grace enabled bondservants in this position not to talk back, not to steal, but to work faithfully and exemplary, 
then I'm sure that God's grace is ready to meet us and to train us in the places of employment that we find ourselves in as well. With your boss, with your coworkers, students with your teachers and professors and with the other peers you have as you work together in group projects and cohorts and all these things, there's this way of life even in those situations that can adorn the gospel as grace trains us and makes us like Jesus in those situations. And so this section of scripture, it gives us a snapshot of this comprehensive calling of lives that are being trained by grace. It's not a comprehensive list, but what it shows us is this, that whoever you are, man or woman, old or young, whatever situation or calling you find yourself in at the time, there's grace to be Christ-like, to display and adorn the gospel. And that's a wonderful thing that God is at work doing in us by his spirit. And so we've seen grace's comprehensive call. Secondly, we can look at grace's common characteristic. Grace's common characteristic. I found as I've read this passage, even just reading it to you all this morning, it can kind of overwhelm us with words. (laughs) There are a lot of terms that are listed out there that that we can just meditate upon and and marinate in. But did you notice in the midst of that there's one trait that's common to all men, women, young, old? And it's self-control. Self-control. Older men are to be self-controlled. They're not flying off the handle. They're not saying, oh, finally I'm old enough now I can just speak my mind and say what I want. Older women are to teach the younger to be self-controlled and the assumption there is that the older women are modeling self-control as they're teaching self-control to the younger. And then you notice there for younger men, I believe it's in verse 6, it's the only thing explicitly commanded to teach them. Now, what's implied is the older men who are modeling these things are also doing that for the younger men, and that even Titus's exemplary role is also a model to the younger men. But I find that significant. Men, what's the one thing, at least from this passage, that God is seeking to do in you by his grace? To bring you self-control. I think that's really interesting. It's, it's not work skills, it's not leadership, it's not fill you with all kinds of knowledge and things. All those things have their place. But when, when Paul says to Titus, I need you to make sure men know this, they need to know to be self-controlled. In fact, the whole church, men, women, old, young, self-control is something that God is at work seeking to do in the lives of believers. I think this is really striking on a lot of levels, and I've just been pondering, like, what is it about self-control? As we think about our situation, it's helpful to realize that one of the highest values of our day, it's just in the air that we breathe, is that self-expression is one of the most important things for us. 
And especially those of you who are younger, younger than the old people like Ryan and me here in the church. But, but you'll be noticing it in the air even more than we have that the best thing that you can do as a person, the healthiest thing that you could do is just to let out and act according to who you really are inside. And what goes alongside that is that anyone or anything like religion or Christianity or the Bible that's inhibiting this self-expression is bad for you and that to restrain yourself in any way is just to be a hypocrite. There's kind of this idolatry, we could say, of self-expression. And the reality is self-control, it pushes back on this. It says, now, wait a minute, self-expression, we need to think about that a little bit more because what the scriptures tell us is that our inner passions and our inner dispositions, they've been profoundly affected by the fall. And those inner things, they sometimes need restraint, don't they? Without self-control, actually, we're vulnerable to all sorts of harm. And this is something that the scriptures hold forth. In, in Proverbs 25, 28, it says, a person without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Think of the vulnerability that that's expressing there. Part of what the Bible is getting at is because of this indwelling sin, because of what the fall has done to us, unrestrained self-expression is actually a very dangerous thing for us. We're vulnerable to attack and we're vulnerable to destruction. As as other people, if we're not self-controlled, they can come along and they can provoke us to hasty actions. And when we let what's inside just come out, we often plunder ourselves and we harm those around us. I've spoken with many people who have found that in a moment the twisted desires of their heart, they went unchecked with with word or action and and they hadn't cultivated self-control or there was a lapse in it and they would give anything to take back that moment when they lost control and said those things or did those things. It destroyed their lives and it hurt so damagingly the people that they love. And so the Bible says that, wait a minute, unrestrained self-expression isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And self-control pushes back on that and, and helps us live with more godly restraint. But sometimes in the church, I think we may overreact a little bit as we hear the phrase self-control and we'll, we'll really kind of just translate that in our minds as self-suppression, right? It's not just unrestrained self-expression, but then we think of it as Okay, you just have to stoically flatten out your personality, stoically flatten out, flatten out your desires and your passions. You just, like, like Luisa and El Canto, you just stuff everything down. You keep it under the surface and it's just building pressure there. You see, self-control is neither unrestrained self-expression nor is it a stifling self-suppression. But what is it? It's, it's far more beautiful than that. There are two things that are at the heart of what self-control is. One is that it, it requires a thoughtfulness. And that thoughtfulness is about this. How do the thoughts, the passions, the desires that I have, how do those things go astray? 
What parts of those need to be reined in? There's a a thinking about those things. And self-control also has a restraint to it. It's saying, you know what? I know how those things can do harm, and so I battle to curb those sinful expressions of myself that do harm to others and to me. You see, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's the one that Paul closes with in his list of nine. And Paul tells Timothy that God has not given him a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and love and self-control. This is what the Spirit is working in us. Grace wants to train every one of us in self-control to make us more like Jesus who lived and laughed and loved and rejoiced with all the passion of a human who's created in the image of a God who delights in creation. And yet his desires and his passions were always kept in check, restrained from anything that would be sin, never out of control, never giving expression to some sort of bent desire that's that's contrary to who he was truly made to be according to God's design. And so I think we need to ask ourselves, is self-control something that can be said of us as believers? When things don't go your way, when you're tired and you feel like you deserve a break, when you're at work and nothing's going well, when you're on the road in California, when your kids are getting on your nerves, or when you're at home and no one else is around. What Paul wants us to see through the teaching of Titus is that in those very situations, grace is there. God's grace to help you in that say no to the ungodliness that may seem so instinctive and instead to redirect you into a passion, a zeal, a zealousness for the good works that are there for you in that moment that the Spirit can enable you to see and to move into. That's how grace trains us in self-control. And so we've seen grace's comprehensive call. We've seen grace's uh, common characteristic. And then finally, we'll notice grace's common motivation common motivation. All throughout this passage, we see that Paul is very concerned with what other people say. It's kind of interesting to hear a Christian talk like this, isn't it? In verse 5, he says that older women mentoring the younger in a way of life is done so that the word of God may not be reviled. Reviled meaning criticized or insulted. In verse 8, Titus is a model of good works and healthy soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that opponents would have nothing evil to say about us. Notice, Titus's character affects what people say about the broader church. And then in verse 10, bondservants working in a good and faithful way that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. See, Paul is saying that our conduct shows something about the gospel. Our conduct can either highlight its beauty or hide and distort it. That word there, adorn, 
that's in verse 10, it gives us such a, a beautiful picture of how this works. Adorn means to make beautiful or to decorate, right? And, and I know some people who can just adorn anything, and it's amazing. Uh, I am not as talented at those types of things. But what adorn means is it doesn't mean that you take something ugly and you try and hide its ugliness. Adorning means you arrange or decorate something or someone so that what is beautiful is highlighted. It's the right frame on a picture or a work of art that just draws attention to the beauty that's there. I've seen sometimes just the perfectly chosen jewelry that just adorns the brightness of someone's face. It just highlights the the beauty that is there. And what Paul is saying to Titus is this good, healthy doctrine of a God who saved us, it's decorated by the things that we do. Not because it's lacking in beauty or goodness, but because these actions, according to God's plan, then highlight and draw attention to. They make visible the beauty of this beautiful gospel, this beautiful grace. And what Paul wants to have happen here is he wants Christians to be motivated by what others could say about their conduct. Now, you're probably sitting there with a few objections, because I have them, um, and I think they're, they're good ones to consider. We're to be motivated by what others could say about our conduct. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> People will always have something bad to say about Christians, right? I mean, if, if that's what we're concerned about, we're going to be spending a lot of time thinking about those things. And we can't just adjust or conform to what other people think about us, right? I mean, that's not what the Bible's saying. Well, there's a few things to keep in mind, two things to keep in mind about that. One, Paul is not calling us to go and take a poll and say to everyone, how do you wish Christians would act? And then based on that poll, we just adjust our behavior. The way we live as we follow Christ will always be disturbing to the unbelieving world. Scripture tells us that clearly. There's an implicit conviction. It's, it's light exposing darkness. And, and that dynamic will always exist. And Paul's not speaking against that. But what Paul is calling Christians to do is live according to the biblical morality that we see held forth. Those things that we are commanded to do and to be as Christians. And what Paul is banking on here is his understanding that we find in Romans 2 that all people have this understanding written upon their hearts. That this understanding and and being designed as an image bearer of God, being made in his image, means that there's this right and wrong that is written there. And it may be suppressed, it may be opposed, it may be mocked, but it is there. And so he's calling Christians to live in accord with the biblical morality that we see in Scripture that's also written on the hearts of everyone in this world. So that when honestly assessed, that they can't say what those Christians are doing is evil and actually be right about it. Like what was happening in Corinth, right? In in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul says to the church at Corinth, you are doing things that are not even tolerated among the pagans, and you think it's great. That's a major problem that Paul's pushing back on here. And we've seen this happen, haven't we? 
We've seen that churches have covered up abuse of women and children in the name of Christ. We've seen that Christians in this country have argued that African Americans should continue to remain enslaved because they are inferior humans. We've seen the church turn a blind eye to injustices and suffering all around us. We've seen churches and parachurches cover up and hide predatory behavior and immorality in the name of good being done for the kingdom. And this list could go on and on, but what Paul is saying here is that we are called to, whatever the consequences are, call that out and name that as wrong and deal with it according to what we see here in Scripture so that we are not going on and doing evil that the world can look at because the law is also written upon their hearts and that they could be right and say, you know what, what's happening there is wrong. We say, yes, it has been, and we are seeking to deal with it, and we are using God's grace to follow him in seeking to live rightly. And so what we first keep in mind is that Paul is calling us to this biblical morality that's, that's written upon the heart. And then secondly, there's a difference between people's rhetoric and their experience. There's a difference between people's rhetoric and their experience. And unfortunately, a lot of the talking that's done today is rhetorical. And what rhetorical means is it's done in order to make a point or to persuade, isn't it? Most of what we hear, like on social media or in news posts or whatever, has a rhetorical goal. And in our day and age, lying is actually accepted. You can say things that aren't totally true or maybe flat out untrue, as long as you're getting people riled up and on your side, hopefully toward a good cause. That's rhetorical. I don't think our goal is to get rid of all rhetoric against Christians. I think what Paul wants us to do is not give in to that rhetoric and do it ourselves, regardless of what the results might be. But that rhetoric may always be there. But instead, this having something evil to say is more a person's assessment from the actual Christians that they know their actual experience with other believers, could they? what would they actually say about the conduct of the believers who are in their lives? And believers are in their lives because we're neighboring them, right? And so you could think of an unbeliever speaking about Christians in general, right? You could think of how that conversation may go. What, what do you think of Christians? They're kind of crazy, Um, Some of them are really out there. Man, I don't understand their views on Prop 1. I think that's pretty wild that they want to take away women's rights. I don't agree with that at all. And so I think Christians are pretty messed up. What about the Christians that you know? Do you know any Christians? You could give thought to it for a moment. You know, I have worked with a few. In fact, I have some who live next door to me and They were good workers. I was amazed at how diligently they did their job, how much they didn't get sucked into like office politics and and all that gossip and stuff. They, They were good people. And you know, when I think of the Christians I know, they're loving people. I think of some of the ones who are married. Not all of them were married, but some who were. Those husbands and wives, they loved each other. There's something about how they served and, and what they seem to like see in each other 
that went beyond just romantic stuff, but there was something about it that's just so deep and and otherworldly. And in fact, I felt some of that even as they would talk to me, as they looked at me and they saw me as someone that seemed to matter. And in fact, one time I, I went to church with them. It was just the wildest thing because it's like everybody had a place there. It was men and women treating each other well. It was young and old, and they were all caring for each other. And, you know, as I looked around, I I saw that there were some people there who, you know, the world would kind of just look over, or we would just think, have more trouble in society or whatever it might be. They'd be overlooked in a lot of situations, but they were cared for and loved and taken in and valued. There was something there that was just different than so many other places I've been. And you know, if I stop and I think about that, if, if that's what they're saying, that, that that unborn baby in the womb, whether wanted or not, is just another one of those vulnerable people that they love and care for and would stand up for, maybe I don't agree with it, but I at least I see where that's coming from. And I have to give it a little bit of thought. I think that's some of what Paul's getting at when he speaks about how our conduct would bring about a way of living that would be spoken about differently when it comes to the individual's experience of people with Christians. And when I think about it like that, that gives me a lot of hope. Because I don't know what the results would be of that, voting-wise, or in our country, or in the world. And I think when we start to get hung up on the results, things can quickly go astray. But, but I know that what it would be doing is it would be adorning the beauty of the gospel. That it would be putting on display the wonder of this grace that comes and offers salvation to all people, and then as it comes to us, it trains us and it shapes us in such a way that heaven is breaking in upon this world and there's only one way that 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 can be attained and it's only through Jesus. Nothing else can offer that type of transformation and change. It's easy for passages and sermons like this to feel like condemnation. I was talking with some of you about this passage coming up, you know, this week, and um, a common sediment is these passages are hard. They can be hard to hear, right? And you're in good company if you find Titus 2, 1 through 10 convicting. (laughs) You're in good company because all of us need further training in grace, don't we? All of us are lacking in self-control. And all of us have areas in our lives that aren't really adorning the gospel. But don't let that good and that right spirit-wrought conviction become devilish condemnation in your minds. Hear it through the sound and healthy doctrine of the gospel. Because the next verse says this, For the grace of God has appeared. God's grace came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ and he gave himself for us to pay for every sin that we have committed 
every evil that we have done against God and others. He died on a cross to redeem us from all lawlessness and not only to save us, but to make us like him, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. The sound gospel doctrine for you to hear today and for me to hear today is that whoever you are, man, woman, young, old, in whatever situation you are in, grace is here to train you so that your life can adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. And that it can show in a glimpse the beauty of who we will one day be that is even now breaking in as we interact with those around us. And so the question is this, will you receive that grace? Will you say, you're right, Lord. Here is where I need it. I confess it. I see it. I agree. And I turn to you now again and again for grace. That's what it means for grace to train us as we seek to walk according to it in our daily lives. Let's pray and ask our God's help.